Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine this. You're stranded on an island forever. But don't freak out because you get to bring one dish with you. Your desert island dish. What is it? Every week, your hosts, Paul and Tegan, that's us. Hello. Hello. We'll ask this question. They'll chat with and torment a literal raft of guests on the island who'll dish up stories, gossip, and culinary secrets. But they all have one big thing in common. They bloody love food. Welcome to Dish Island. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good day, <laughs> good day, and welcome. Good morrow. <laughs> good morrow, and welcome. <laughs> welcome by Jove to Dish Island. My name is, actually I should do this in a British accent, my name is Tegan Higginbotham. And my name is Paul Verhoeven, and because <laughs> the island can float, we appear to have floated into the British Isles. Oh, um, goody. Yeah, so. For the Queen's Jubilee, no doubt. Actually, well, this week we have a very, very wonderful guest, but before we get to our guest, I have some breaking, breaking food news. <laughs> I thought your stutter had taken a new form. Yeah, my stutter is nine octaves higher than my regular voice. Hey, you've got breaking food news. Does this mean you've been dropping eggs in the kitchen again? Well, yes, but that's not what this is about. So, uh, the headline today is Vogue Editor-in-Chief Anna Wintour has revealed her go-to lunch order. Would you like to see what Anna Wintour eats for lunch every day? Is it the souls of all the models that she churns through Vogue? No, that's dessert. Oh, yeah. Okay. It is a $77, and that is US dollars, a $77 caprese salad with no tomatoes and a small piece of steak. Now, first of all, if a caprese salad doesn't have any tomatoes, is it a caprese salad? That's like being like, hey, I'll have a pizza, thanks. No tomato, no cheese, hold the crust. Like, <laughs> but... just, oh, right. So you want a bag of sauce. Basically. This is just, it's two, it's two pieces of, mozza, of buffalo mozzarella sitting on what looks like a giant basil leaf, right? And it's got the kind of sauce on it, but there's no tomatoes. So I would argue it's not a caprese salad. And then there's a small medallion of what I would say is incredibly good steak. Now, kudos for the steak. I have... I have a feeling that, that this is probably a, quite a balanced lunch. You've got a little bit of protein there, a little bit of dairy and calcium from your cheese. We've had this discussion about money. If, for example, we ever won Tats Lotto, I would still not go out and buy a Birkin bag. I think some things are just overpriced and that doesn't make them better. It just makes them more expensive. Yes. I I mean, I don't know if this photo is an accurate representation of the tomato-less caprese salad with a side of sirloin steak that Anna Wintour is getting. I wouldn't spend $77 on that. Can you imagine 77 US, all the fun things you could stick into your mouth? And no, I don't want you to edit that. <laughs> you don't have to pay for them, do you? <laughs> Not if you're charming enough. Let me just go. Hang on a sec. I'm looking on. I'm looking in news and seeing if this is actual breaking news or if this is just kind of tabloid trash. Oh, okay. So this is from Insider. Anna Wintour's go-to lunch included a caprese salad with no tomatoes, according to a new biography. Oh, okay. Anna, written by journalist Amy O'Dell, offers a look into the iconic Vogue editor's life, including what she eats for lunch. In the book, O'Dell writes, her go-to lunch after Condé Nast moved offices to One World Trade Center was a steak and caprese salad without the tomatoes from the nearby Palm restaurant. Representatives for the Palm and Anna Wintour did not immediately respond to Insider's request for comment. I like immediately. Like, later that day she went, you know what, f*** this, I'm saying something. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what this does make me think about, though? Sure. I haven't bought a Sunday paper or a Saturday paper, a physical paper, in quite a while. But there used to be an insert in one of the papers. I'm going to say that it was something Fairfax. Mm -hmm. And on the very back page, you know, in those filler bits where they just need to write something, they would always do my day on a plate. Right. So that's when they'd ask some sort of D-grade celebrity to detail everything they eat. And it's always somebody who's like... I wake up and have an activated almond spritz water with a squeeze of lemon and two teaspoons of turmeric. And that's what I have until 11am when I eat half an avocado on some rye quinoa 
cracker bread. And it's it's just all so... I have a charcoal tablet which I let dissolve before doing 15 lines of blow. I mean, delete that last <laughs> bit. But my, my thing is, I always so badly wanted to be asked... God, I wanted to be asked. And then I wanted to really accurately go through my day like, hey, I wake up. There was no decent food in the house, so I cobbled together three ends of leftover bits of bread that I found at the back of the freezer, smooshed them with a mallet and made a piece of toast. I then drank four coffees, sorry, for lunch and just go through and detail all these sad, sad things that I'm eating. You know what? When you get that profile, and you inevitably will, I want you to follow through with that. You reckon? Yep, absolutely. Be as grim as you possibly can. You know who isn't grim? Our guest on today's episode of Dish Island. He is a restaurateur, a chef, and you may remember him from MasterChef. He has an incredible new cookbook out. His name is Gary Megan, and here he is on the island. There may be a little bit of noise. You, we've got two massive dogs, and we're um, and we've got a Great Dane and a Dane Cross, and they are how shall I put it? Respectfully known as our head of security, because every time every time <laughs> there's a noise, they they go mental. So I have to put a warning. So if they do, it'll just be in the podcast, unfortunately. That's fine. I'm exactly the same. Anytime I, someone drives a little male, I'm screaming and running around. <laughs> yeah. Well, Fergus, who's our Dane, he's more famous than I am. People, people, people just walk straight up to me, look me in the eye, and go, "Can I stroke your dog?" I go, Phew. and then they give him, they give him love and stroke him, and he enjoys it immensely. And they turn around and go, "Oh, sorry," and they, and because they kind of all of a sudden they go, "Oh, you're Gary from Marshall." We go, "Yeah, it's fine," but if you're not. So what you're saying is you want pats, is what you want. I am tempted, and I've never done it, but occasionally a um, someone will come up and I hear, "Oh my God, you big handsome boy," and I. T- <laughs> And I, and I honestly, I do want to turn around and go, well, thank you very much. But I, oh, well. but I do know that it's the dog, not me. I bet you're just hoping that Fergus doesn't bring out a cookbook just in case the sales are better. He's very much into raw food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Fishing in that way. It's all paleo. It's I all understand. paleo. He's, car- yeah. he's pure carnivore. Well, I guess we should... Um, I mean, if you're up for it, I guess we should kick the interview off if you're good. But we're off. If you if you dare, Paul, <laughs> cut any of that stuff about Fergus out, you're in trouble. We are getting divorced. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying that we probably shouldn't be taking culinary advice from an animal that licks its own balls between uh, courses. I just think yeah, dogs. It it does actually highlight the fact that um, it's horses for courses in a sense, doesn't it? That we've all got a different taste, and what is disgusting for some is quite delicious for the other. And I'm not talking about his testicles. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Although, although I have eaten those in India, uh, Kashmiri. You yeah, did yeah, not. absolutely. Yeah. Why not? They're, they're actually cooked well. They're delicious. Sheep's. I think they were goat's testicles actually, and they were served. They were served in a, a creamy uh, sauce, and now people are going ah. But served oh. with Kashmiri morels. Morels are a, what people assume are a little French, you know, mushroom, and yeah, they grow very well in Kashmir, and it was delicious. But like everything, it has to be cooked well. I mean, if they were just boiled, I don't think they'd be particularly delicious. Good on you for not waiting for your I'm a celebrity get Moment. me out of here experience to just jump well, in. Well, I do. I have actually watched it in the past and gone, you know, I think they were at one stage they were serving ostrich bottom or arse or something, however they described it. And I, and I genuinely thought there are people somewhere that are going, well, I think that's all right. I don't think that's particularly horrible because I'm sure there is a way of preparing it. I'm sure. It's just calamari. Just bread it and crumb Indeed. It. I mean, there's a little sausage, a little French sausage called andouille or andouillette, which is actually an intestine mm. sausage. And people like to ignore the fact that a sausage skin anyway, unless it's um, a artificial sausage skin, which is made out of other things, but is, a, is intestines. But they stuff the andouille and it's very, there is a description and sometimes an andouille can be a bit Bummy. A bit bummy. I can only kind of leave it, because, but when you cut the sausage in half, there's all these French people throwing their hands up in the air and go, but he's delicious. And it is, with mustard sauce, it's delicious. But when you cut it open, there's a good andouille has, andouillette has um, all the little, little chunks of everything that would normally, in most people's lives, go in the bin. There are, in your intestine, you have these little things called, I think they're villi. I'm going back to my biology from school. Yeah, that sounds about right. Basically, they've got a job of pulling nutrients out of things that are passing through the intestine. And you can actually see those little chunks of those intestine with the villi on there. And you've really, there's even me as a chef, and I'll eat pretty much anything once just to give it a go. There's bits of me that go, 
Oh yeah, that really is a bit bummy. <laughs> it's it's funny though because it 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 would have to be one of the most respectful things. You know, they say that you should yes, use every yes. bit of the animal. I mean, it is so respectful, but. You know, where do you draw the line and does the animal really care? <laughs> no, there is, there is no line. And, d- and don't forget those normal kind of snags that you chuck on the, on the mm. barbie, they are the ultimate nose to tail. But because what, they are what's called, and in many cases what's called mechanically reclaim, m- reclaimed meat, where this has started off terribly. I no, I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I really... feel like we've just got to keep waiting until or you're either, You've either just lost half the audience or, or you've locked them in for the rest <laughs> yeah. of the interview. They, um... <laughs> The um, rec- mechanically reclaimed meat, basically the kind of meaty bones and things go in, you know, heads and everything, and uh, basically a vacuum strips everything off, and then it gets, it's beyond mince. It's like a slurry, and then that's often textured, okay. and that will find its way into all sorts of meat products. And that's why, that you know, I don't know if you remember years ago, there was this thing about 100% mm. beef, and everybody would go, yeah, but what bit? We know it's beef, but, you know... We know it's 100%, but what bit? And, of course, it's... Every- so what you're saying is the Andwheel is at least... It's got an honesty to it. it there's, there's some integrity to it. There's some structure to it. Whereas when you chuck those cheap snags on a barbie, that is everything you really can't imagine eating in, in, a, in a tidy little package popped on a barbecue and eaten with tomatoes. Gary, sauce. what we've done is we've stranded you on a desert island and all manner all manner of horrors <laughs> happen to our guests here, but you have front-loaded your chat. <laughs> you scared us, so congratulations. I'll tell you what, stranded on a desert island with a little packet of Andouille and some mustard, Andouille and some mustard, I'd be very happy. That would not be a bad stranding at all. Speaking of isolation, I've just dived <laughs> into your, your latest cookbook, Good Food Every Day, and I don't know if this yeah. is a sentence that's ever been... <laughs> uttered out loud yet but in some ways it struck me as a bit of a love letter to isolation god can you even say that god it was a no no it was i think it was it was an homage it was just it was actually i'm i'm turning every page and it's just taking me back to days where i went yeah i'm gonna teach myself how to do this or i'm gonna i'm just gonna do but it's all it's all thrown in there so lovingly it's put a beautiful spin out of being trapped on our little islands. You're right, and it was a, it was an unexpected book, and it was I think when we spoke to the publisher, and I was like, oh look, you know, I mean, the world doesn't need another cookbook. I mean, if you could see behind me where I am, there's I've got you know probably 600 cookbooks in my bookshelf, and a lot of people have many cookbooks that they never turn the first page of. You know, they sit on the coffee table and they go to the bookshelf, and I thought I really don't want to do another one, and then I just thought, you know what, I've got so many recipes you know, on the computer and in my head and things that I cook every day that when I bump into people, they go, oh, what are you cooking? And I go, oh, just the same old, same old. But it isn't the same old, same old, you know, to everybody else, you know. So I just thought, why not? And lockdown was a perfect time for me actually just to uh, perfect a couple of things, in all honesty, that, you know, I might often just throw together but never really think of a recipe. Like my daughter will go, this tastes different to last time. I go, yeah, I put this in or I didn't put this in. And it drives them nuts, but I tend to change recipes all the time like that. So yeah, it was a good opportunity. They got we all got well fed. Put it that way. I put on more weight than I've... <laughs> I. I you, you're picturing a overly middle aged chubby chubby man anyway. <laughs> but I I did. You know, the, I, we all fell into a couple of different groups, didn't we? Those that went fanatically, you know, healthy and lost weight, and you know, bought home gyms, and those that went out and bought cake rings and and sourdough ovens, you know. So <laughs> you did kind of what the rest of us did. You fell into a sort of food dojo, right? Yeah, I did, yeah. Did you yeah. find that there were sort of untapped depths to your skill that you didn't realise you'd ever had to access before? I, I, I kind of perfected a couple of... Like the sourdough, for example. I mean, I, I've made bread all my career, but not as, as a baker. I mean, the, the skill of a great baker is something to admire. And in comparison, my skills would be the fast food version of, you know, like I would make bread rolls for the restaurant and they're quick and easy. But things like sourdoughs, I'd kind of never really bothered actually baking enough to get it, to get a feel for it. Um, You know, I'd bake a loaf and go, oh, that worked and then just keep buying it, you know, for $9 a loaf. Whereas during lockdown, I went, you know what, I'm just going to, I've got nothing else to do. I'm just going to do a bit of, you know, I'm going to bake a loaf of bread. Um, And I did it pretty much every day to the point where, um, I was handing it over the fence to neighbours and freezing it and then trying to use mountains of what they call sourdough, you know, or sourdough starter discard, you know, which is because you have to feed your starter. It's like, what were those little Japanese things? 
They were like a little digi. Oh, like a oh, like a Tamagotchi. Yeah, Tamagotchi. So your Sabo starter is like a an actual real live Tamagotchi. You know, that if you leave alone, it just dies. You know, so and everything else in the fridge kind of throws their hands out. Oh my god, it's horrible. He let the Sabo starter die. Um, so yeah, it was it was a bit of. I enjoyed it. It was quite therapeutic, and I've, there's never been a point in my career where I've actually been able to take time to do that. So that book is actually a reflection of the first downtime I've had probably in 35 years of cooking and restaurants. God, I find it so lovely to think that um, you have been in this industry for so long and yet in some ways we were all on a very similar food platform and that and that what's more <laughs> is that after all this time you were still finding it therapeutic to, to, well, to wade back into food. Yeah. I, I worked yeah. in footy for a little while. And found it really interesting, the people who, uh, you know, they, they go from playing football and then suddenly they're broadcasters and they're covering four or five games every mm. weekend. I found it interesting seeing the ones who still, you could still see that passion in their eyes. Yeah. And then the ones who, man, they were dead on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> they are, oh, this. There's a lot of hospitalitarians that are dead on the inside, don't, but it, but it's often it's through no fault of their own. I mean, it's it's hard business. And don't forget, as a chef, you know, I think that people say, "Oh, when did you fall in love with food?" And I go, "Well, actually, probably fairly late in my career. I mean, certainly in the early part of my career, everything was new and exciting and fascinating. But then there's what they call the dip, you know, the hard yards of, you know, you know, working, you know, long hours and perfecting your craft. And I don't think there's a lot of love attached to that. Like when I really think back on it, it was about perfecting skills under pressure and you know really questioning whether or not this is something you want to do for the rest of your life I remember coming home you know in my early 20s you know with kind of swollen fingers from being on the butchery you know where you cut yourself for a number of times and they become infected and you're tired and of course that makes it worse and you know geez I can break down a, a, a lamb or anything you give me but that period in my career was just really hard I remember questioning whether or not I wanted to do it so when we you know fast forward a number of years onto MasterChef and everybody's talking about the love of food and you know I, I'm passionate and all the rest of it there's a little bit I used to look at George sometimes there's a little cynicism in there that goes yeah I'll show you <laughs> you know <laughs> because it's um yeah it can be a bit brutal um you know so sometimes they're a different thing one's kind of you know based on uh, I suppose the dignity of labour and perfecting your skill base and becoming a tradesperson and the other and cooking at home is an entirely different thing. But of course, later on in your career, you know, I think, and maybe this is what you're talking about, you either fall into the bitter and sour camp or you then truly embrace that idea of cooking and hospitality and looking after people. And they're, they're people that are, I mean, we went to Gimlet the other week, which is one of Andrew McConnell's restaurants. It's got, I think, you know, five or six restaurants. And and there is a man, for example, that is a true hospitalitarian, brilliant at what he does. He's got, he, you know, his everything he touches seems to work. Um, and he's got an innate, innate sense of what is obviously delicious and what makes people happy. I read that, that you kind of were being torn in a couple of different career directions when you were younger, um, through your dad and your granddad <laughs> in particular. Do you think, and, and it was your, your granddad who worked in a kitchen, was he one of those people who'd managed to keep that spark alive? Yeah, he was. I mean, I, I think it was just clear to my dad that I was, you know, everything I did at school, I wanted to be an engineer. And I grew up on the south coast of, of England in a place called Hailing Island, which is near Portsmouth. And that is a naval base, Portsmouth Gosport. And everything around it was all um, to do with, you know, the small precision engineering firms and big aerospace companies like Plessy and Marconi, Defence Systems, Fleetlands, helicopters, all that. So it kind of seemed, Dad was an engineer and I just thought, you know, I'll be an engineer or I'll be an architect or, you know, whatever. So everything I did at school was, you know, chemistry and technical drawing and physics and all that sort of stuff. And I think I was trying to repair my bike one day in the garden and I just was getting angry and it really is, this is me now. Like, give me something that I can solve in a few minutes, I'm happy. Give me something that really needs close attention and requires, you know, some real thought. And I'd rather give it to someone else <laughs> because, because they're not where my skills lie. I'm kind of more flighty and creative and, and impulsive, you know, and I love the instant gratification of, you know, that's why cooking's, I love cooking because it's instantly gratifying. You can eat it, you can feed it to someone and there's a result. And I was, I was trying to fix my bicycle on the back lawn and I 
got angry and I ended up, I don't know, kicking it or hitting it or throwing it on the ground. And I can hear my dad laughing in the house. <laughs> and he told me afterwards, that, and that made me even more angry. And he told me afterwards, he just left me just to see if I could work it out. And then shortly after that, he said, I'm not sure engineering is the right career path for you. <laughs> and he tried to explain to me that what he did, and he was a tool maker and in a precision sense, he was actually a jig borer, whatever the hell that was. And um, I used to think as a kid, he made shovels and spades. That's what I thought a tool maker did, but apparently not. They make things for aircraft and stuff like that. And he said, we might work on a project for three months. Yeah. And I just went, nah, I don't want to do that. And, I, and, he, and he said, talk to your granddad. And granddad had been a chef all his life and a teacher. And he always, and it was then that I realized he was kind of happy, engaged, a people person, um, had a beautiful garden. And I realized actually, I probably would like to do this. So yeah, but, and I started then veering towards, you know, granddad and, you know, yeah, he set me on the right path. It's obvious that you're a creative and it's obvious that you, you know, you like making things to make people happy. And I was, mm. I thought you were heading somewhere there. I thought you were trying to explain how <laughs> engineering and cooking have something in common. Well, maybe they do. I, I, you know, I think that it's just a way of me, you know, I suppose laughing at a, at a, crossroads in my life where I could have ended up I suppose like a lot of people that end up on MasterChef is that they've become something I don't know that they they made a choice early on in their life that they wanted to be a policeman or a firefighter mm. or an engineer and and possibly never explored anything else and then ended up in a job that they hate and I I kind of now having done what I've done in my life think I really don't think I could have being the engineer that my dad was or ended up working for, you know, a large aerospace company walking around in a, I don't know, who knows what I would have been walking around in a lab coat looking at a small control board. I, I, who knows? But no, I, the idea of making a perfect mashed potato with tons of butter and is much more appealing. How do you fare when you come up against the, you know, the less, the less creative <laughs> elements of cooking? For example, you know, running a business or dealing with numbers yeah. and spreadsheets and all of the non-creative stuff. How do you, or even washing up, how do you fare when you come up against those things? Uh, washing up's easy. I mean, if there's a choice as a business owner and there'll be people listening to this that go, I can identify with that. If there's a choice between sitting down and facing the reality of your... Um, your expense sheet for the for the bigger <laughs> dish pig, and or or going and washing yeah. up. Um, you choose the washing up every mm. time because the washing up you can relate to it, understand, and it fulfills a a role in the business. And you know you're standing next to those people in the kitchen, and they're in extremely important. Without them, the kitchen doesn't function. You know you're you're you know, and we laugh at it now, but we used back in the day they were called dish pigs, and we still laugh about it. But that role is critical in the kitchen, and you are you celebrate them and you you know you feed them well and you do anything to keep them coming back every day because the last thing you want to do is get your sleeves rolled up but given the choice of doing that or sitting down you know going over a spreadsheet or calling suppliers and saying i can't call you can't pay you this week can i pay you next week you'd much rather be the dish pig for the day because um, it's hard yakka but being in business you know the short answer of being in business being in business um, you have to learn fast, otherwise you're not in business for very long. So the reality of transitioning from a tradesperson, whether that's a carpenter or a chef mm. or a you know, sommelier, into running your own business, is a, it, it's a very different thing. It's very hard, and some people do well at it, and some people obviously don't. Well, speaking of transitioning between different career kind of aspects I'm very curious as to whether because you've spent years and years and years learning how to present things and plate them up in a way that is visually <laughs> spectacular because we were talking with Ed Halmaggi from Better Homes and Gardens last yeah. week and yeah. he pointed out that hospitality it's a holistic experience from the moment you walk in to the moment you leave sure. the whole it's not just about the food it's about the experience no. so now that you have spent a period as we all have locked inside with your family plating up for them every night do you just kind of slough off any desire to plate up and make things look good? Have you gone back to pure function as opposed to form? Or do you still try and kind of, you know, drizzle jus in a kind of artistic <laughs> way just to kind of feed that creative part of you each night? Yeah, I don't make jus at home, that's for sure. <laughs> the odd lumpy gravy, maybe. But, and, and you know what's really weird is lumps in gravy taste really nice. Like I often make a roast chicken, I do a roast chicken at home and I'll make gravy. And I say to my daughter, do I sieve the lumps out or leave the lumps in? And guaranteed every time, lumps nice. in. It's like, that, it's like that stuff that gets stuck to the bottom of the pan when you've made it. And it's, exactly. Oh, it's the good stuff. Exactly. Yes. You see, you're with me. So there's a, but uh, the, the answer, I suppose the longer answer is that 
what I still appreciate and what I love, you know, and talking about going out to dinner last week and we're going out to dinner tonight, is what I love is the the anticipation, the expectation, and the and the and getting something to the table that looks beautiful is yeah. I mean, and that's why you go out to eat. I mean, many years ago, I remember Shannon Bennett talking about you know because he was on MasterChef with us for many years and he was talking about you know his priorities at Pudamon from day one and it was always to cook things that you could never in a million years cook at home. So he said the complication is almost a prerequisite, you know, of a meal at because he said, why on earth would I want to cook something that you could quite as easily cook at home? Whereas most of us, I suppose, including myself, go, well, yes, but, you know, sometimes the simplest things are the best. And they are, but there's an appreciation that I have still for beautiful food. And I do actually, not being a restaurateur anymore and not having a, a, rest, having a restaurant or working day to day in the kitchen, I do miss that. There's a little sense of pleasure, and you describing that drizzling the sauce, there's a little sense of pleasure just finishing a dish off. Mm. There's a, this, a, it's really, I love being on the pass where you've got people around you, behind you, and we're all, you know, we're all on the same page. We're all connected and, you know, working beautifully. And it doesn't always work like that, but when it does, it's fabulous. And putting up dishes and pushing them over the pass and just the idea of putting that beautiful food across the pass and knowing that people are going to love it. Yeah, that's, there's a, there's a buzz to that, that. And that's what I mean about that instant gratification. Because you if you're busy restaurant, 150 covers... You know, and you're doing two services, you're close to, you know, 300 covers in a night of, you know, deadlines. Everyone has a deadline. Are you 100% out? Are you, are you thinking about going uh, back? No, I don't, I, look, it's a difficult time for the restaurant industry at the moment. I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't be buying any personally. And there'd be, there are people that are doing very well out there and capitalising on the environment at the moment there's also a lot of pain most of that is down to lack of staff and skills and you know it's another hurdle that we're all very used to in this game uh, but not right now and I've promised my wife certainly that if I'm to do something else and occasionally I have crazy ideas um, that if I want to do it I have to be 100% all in and passionate and not willing to give that away or delegate that too quickly if that makes any sense there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss because it's all very well setting up a business and then gas is never there mm. but I'd, I think if I'm going to do it it would be one of those businesses that I'm quite often there certainly at the beginning always there and that's I think that's certainly in this environment and it's not just hospitality it's everything we, we know you know the finance industry's in turmoil you know we've got a war we've got you know, rising rising inflation. It's not easy for people in business at the moment. So, yeah, I'm just I'm treading water at the moment. I'm quite happy just to you know look at the beach and and look at the sky and dream of other things. Oh, that's that's <clears> really <throat> lovely because I was going to say I know that you know you, there is still a lot going on in your world, but it does sound like you're in a bit of a place of yeah flux. Which I mean, so many of us, yeah. all Paul and I, are having conversations weekly about going. Who knows? We just cannot even predict what 2022 is going to deliver. No. And trying to be okay with that is the challenge. But it sounds like for you, you you're actually pretty bloody okay with that. No, I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I have to remind myself sometimes that I've had a really long and productive career. And I've been lucky enough, really, MasterChef and, and the advent of MasterChef was a, a, a career path choice too. You know, do you jump onto TV and, in a sense, you know, put your restaurants, you know, because they tend to play second fiddle, unfortunately, because you're on you know you're on set all the time mm. but we you know the three of us were lucky enough to do that for close to 12 years like 11 years mm. I mean George and I because Matt didn't do every series I think we did 16 series of television it's massive so big. you know it's it, yeah long a long career by any standards and of course when I did my own podcasting and I talked to old people like I had Paul Mercurio and Pierre Miranda on recently and you know they talk about this feast or famine I've never had feast or famine because I've always had something else going on but now I'm descending slowly into famine so we'll see how that we'll see how that goes no but I, I, I joke about it but like it's very much a period in my life I'm 55 and I go if I wanted to I could kind of that the idea is to do much less and I've I'm 
struggling in a sense to quiet my mind. Mm. I've spent so much of my life so busy and almost, I've described it to a close friend of mine as being almost in a bubble, you know, that I I didn't do anything else other than what I did, you know, restaurants, TV, and I was lucky enough to just float along in this bubble. I could never really latch on to too much because I never had time to do any of it. And that included friends and to some extent family and anything that was really important, someone else seemed to deal with. Um, and that felt very good at the time, but then actually coming out of it, I've gone, I've missed a lot. And, and not, I don't feel regretful in any way, but I just go, now when a friend rings and says, hey, you want to jump on a bicycle and just go for a ride? I go, all right, let's do that. Whereas before I'd go, I'm busy. So they never rang, they just stopped ringing. Mm. Right. Um, so I'm, in, I'm enjoying some of that and I have to, you know, I don't need another car, I don't need another house or, I don't need to... Do you know what I mean? I, I think COVID has done that a lot for yeah. us. You know, like I went to upgrade the car. I think it was right in the middle of lockdown. He said, oh, you're, that's a 10-month wait. And I said, oh, I'm kind of an impulsive guy. If I want to buy it, I need it now. Now I don't need it. And I don't. Right. I don't it's like a tattoo. You should carry a photo around your wallet for a year. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's true. And I, and I think a lot of us, I think a lot of us have kind of, certainly in our friendship group, have gone... Yeah, I don't care either. And I really don't care about a lot of things. And it, I think certainly a lot of us had to get new wardrobes when we were allowed mm. out because we were, we, we, I know my wife would look at me and go, oh no, oh no. I go, what? You, no, no, you can't leave the house like that. I go, and I'd look down, I go, I think it's reasonable. You know, I felt like an old, you know, an old man in a pair of socks and, and Birkenstocks. And I'm not, not that I did, but I kind of felt that before leaving the house, I needed to check with my wife and go, do I look presentable? Is this something that you would wear in the outside yeah, world? Yeah, we all turned a bit peculiar. I mean, <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of missing things, Gary, I mean, look, food and travel go hand in hand, right? And mm. Tegan and I have spent pretty much the entire lockdown walking around our suburb in large circles, going mad. But most of the time we were talking mm. about two things, where we wanted to go and what we were going to eat when we get there. So I'm, I'm curious as to where you've been fantasizing about traveling to now that the world's opening back up, especially from a culinary perspective. Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to, I went back to the UK to see family. We went back, the whole family went back to see, you know, because we hadn't seen family for two years, which, you know, I mean, let's be honest, you didn't have to be, you didn't have, you didn't need relatives in the UK to do mm. that. That could have been Queensland or South Australia yeah. or that, or that other country. What's that? Uh, Western Australia Never heard of it. the other country. Well, the other country you couldn't get into. Um, so we were lucky enough to go back and it was quite, li- I felt it, it felt liberating getting on an aircraft and it was the first time I think ever I'd sat on an aircraft for 24 hours and quite enjoyed it. <laughs> it, it like I, just the experience of sitting on an aircraft and I found myself thinking, my God, a hundred years ago, this would have been incredible. And quite rightly, it is incredible. You know, this strange fanciful thing of traveling through the air at, what is it? 800 kilometers an hour, 600 kilometers an hour at 35,000 feet, almost unimaginable, but it became unimaginable during that lockdown so yeah it was very liberating and next on the hit list for me in all honesty from a culinary perspective is japan um i think they're opening the borders to tourists in june Mm. that's the that's the the word and so yes i'll i'll be trying to organize things to to book you know a couple of weeks away i want to go to north island hokkaido um and just yeah just kind of get stuck into the experience. Oh, we'll see you there. We um we had a trip booked last, no, it was March of 2019. So we had, no, 2020. So we had to cancel it. Um, mm. And I mean, of course, the food, very excited. But oh. Paul had also booked it into a hotel where giant raptor robots check you in. And oh, yes. <laughs> like, this is Japan. Exactly, right? <laughs> and I've got to get back to my raptor robot. Yeah, but knowing 2022, we'd go and then they'd they, the AI would freak out and then we'd be trapped in a hotel <laughs> with robotic raptors. But it'd be more interesting than anything we've done for the past two years, oh, so sure. I don't mind. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, look, it's a fascinating place and the food is, uh, you know, is incredible. Yeah, it's it's one of the go-to places. And my daughter is, you know, obsessed by ramen. You know, it's yes. one of my proudest, one of my proudest moments is that, you know, when she gets the chili jar out or when she, you know, gets stuck into a big plate full of dumplings or enjoys, you know, a big bowl of Slurpee ramen, I go, I did that. That's that's me, you know, so, and, and woe betide any boyfriend that's not, that lacks culinary sophistication. That's- There'd be nothing more disappointing than being an expert in a field and raising a kid who had no interest or taste in no. that field. Well, it, it took a while, but Jenna, she's, and she's 21 now, yeah. and it, but there was a turning point. I think it was just the perseverance. Like, uh, there was a point early on, you know, where I tried, it's one of those things as a parent where you chop carrots in every conceivable way oh, yeah. to make them interesting. And then I'd flavor them. I'd sweet caramelize them with 
with honey. You know, like do a spaghetti of, you know, carrots and, you know, put a little, you know, pinch of cumin and some honey and, and they just spit it out, you know, and you just go, I'm just going to keep going. And so it was, a, yeah, a, a little perseverance. And then I can't remember the point, but one day, you know, she just said, oh, I like that. And I went, I'm in. Because I used to have, it was a standing joke, I've got a whole, you know, top part of the fridge is just condiments and mostly chili and very strong stuff, you know, the, you know, umami, you know, misos and chili sauces and, I don't know, it could be little tubs of things like, um, you know, uh, fish paste or something mm -hmm. like that. And they would always have to be added on later, whereas now they get, you know, it's my wife that turns around and goes, oh, my God, that's hot. And my daughter and I look up and go, is it? And it, sorry, but we knew. There's a little wink. We knew that it was hot. Right. So, yeah, there's, there's a pleasure in that. And I think, I, yeah, I would be disappointed. I'd be, you know, and she's, she's been lucky enough to eat in some incredible places and still does. And You've probably had more of an effect, or I hope that you've had more of an effect than you'll realise just yet. I, I never really respected my dad's skills. He's just, you know... He's a tradie. He's a painter and decorator by mm. trade, but he's very handy. He's the sort mm. of bloke that he built all of our, you know, kitchens. And I, I, I actually think he could build a house. And I've always, yeah. always felt very proud of that, that I think if push came to shove, might be a bit shit, but it'd be a house. Um, but every, every dad knows there's a period where you go from hero to zero. Yeah. And the zero, the zero lasts quite a long time. Like, as we, we, soon as I say anything that is vaguely informed based on any of the experiences I've had in my 55 years. My daughter goes, yeah. <laughs> and, and you have to respect that because, you know, we all as youngsters, you know, as young people want to learn by our, our own mistakes. And it's only later that we turn around and you go, and I've did, I did it to my parents. Why did you never tell me that? And they go, we did. We did. Well, my, mm. my hero moment came when I was seeing this, um, I was just seeing this lovely young man and um, he was going to, call somebody up to build a bookcase in his room and I've never heard a more unattractive thing in my life because I was like what do you mean you need somebody to come and build a bookcase just build the bookcase <laughs> just go get your toolbox what you don't have a toolbox it was just yeah. it was so strange to me the idea hang on was this me are you referring to me well no but you don't have a toolbox either darling and that's okay I've learned to accept yeah. it yeah but I can cook I can cook you can cook <laughs> See, my, my, my DIY, my, my wife always laughs at me. Every time I get the drill out, she goes, where are you going with that drill? Put it down. Put it down. <laughs> put the drill down. Put the drill down. Leave it alone. That's what it is. And my toolbox has got one latch on it, and it's got an old assortment of things in it. And I'm quite proud of some of the DIY stuff that I've done, but other things I've actually left behind in houses that we've sold. Like booby traps? In, I <laughs> Not quite. I just, I, there was one particular instance I remember. It was our first apartment that we'd ever bought and we'd saved for five years to buy this apartment and we lived in it, I think, for five years. And when we sold it, we didn't realise, and I only remembered when I took a picture off the wall, mm. there was actually a drill bit embedded <laughs> into, the, into the brick. It was 1930s brick. And it was embedded so badly that it was impossible to get it out. I just took the picture off the wall and I went, oh, I remember oh, that. Oh, that's right. And that would have been a day off. I would have gone, I'm going to put this picture up and I'll just drill a hole. And it went ping. And I tried to dig it out and made it look worse. It was almost like squeezing a spot as a teenager. Just don't do it. And um, yeah, and I, I covered it with a picture and no one ever knew it was there except me. And so I took the picture down and moved out. I wonder how many DIY projects went that wrong or worse during lockdown across Australia. Yeah. You know? Oh, well, yeah. I was in the hospital system during lockdown. It was really interesting. I, I, I had some, um, I had to get some work done on my hand and I was speaking with the nurse and I said this must be a good time for you guys because there's no football there's nobody out you know driving and that's exactly yeah. what she said she's like everybody as soon as Bunnings opened they all went to Bunnings and then the emergency oh, yeah. rooms were flooded again there are ladders ladders are coming out <laughs> and that's the other thing my wife doesn't like ladders no, get down Gary get down ladders are bad ladders are very yeah. very bad especially when you're on a roof with a leaf blower that's not <laughs> Do that. Wait, wait, oh is the, hang on. Is the ladder propped up on top of the roof? You're just trying to get as high as possible. Just, just to... well, they, yeah, but you know it's bad. You know it's yeah. bad. And people that do it, they know it's bad. And if you're lucky, you can make it out alive. But some people obviously don't. So let's change the subject. That's yeah, terrible. sure. It's funny. It's funny. No, it's funny at one level. And then I just go, oh, no. Oh, no, we need to back away. It's... Just to just to bring it back to Japan, just for a second. <laughs> no, I'm very curious because you did, a, um, you did a campaign with Manu recently and you were getting people yeah. pumped about going back to Japan. And I, I mean, whenever we have people on who are, you know, chefs or, you know, pillars of the food world, 
all of these people have secret little haunts that they go to whenever they hit these cities. You know, they have a secret ramen joint or a weird ah. udon place. Or, so I'm curious, when you go to Japan, what are the best hole-in-the-wall places? Where, where are you headed specifically? Do you have any kind of secret tips for specific places we can go when we get God. to Japan? You know, you know, as an overarching kind of... Um uh, what would you call it, uh, advice, is that I think it's it's really hard to find bad food in Japan. Right. I mean, there are probably people listening to me, no, I disagree. But I fe- I've spent, I've been a couple of times, and one of the trips we would must if we, I think I arrived a week before, we were there for three weeks, travel around a bit. So good stretches of time there. And I found it really, even jumping on the um, sh- shikansen, you know the shikansen, you know the bullet yeah, train? Yeah. And jumping on there and just grabbing a snack, and because things are different and their palates are wired differently. Like in Australia, we love fresh, crunchy, creamy. They like salty, umami, pickly. You know, I know it sounds a bit weird, but after you've been in Japan, if you stay for two or three weeks, you actually eat, all you need to eat is a iceberg lettuce. You kind of crave the opposite. <laughs> but so I know it sounds strange, but it's it for me, it's it's very true. Like we eat a lot of fresh food in Australia. We probably forget that. You know, on the whole, and not everybody, on the whole, we tend to eat lots of fresh, you know, nutritious food. We live in a lucky a lucky country. But, yeah, it's very difficult to not find something you love. But specific places, and I'm trying to think of the name as I'm talking about it. For example, we went in search of, like, the perfect soba noodles, Ooh. you know, or the perfect udon noodles. And, you know, you, for example, you sit down... Uh, there's someone making the noodles in the kitchen. You can see it's part of the show. You know, they're cooking them for, you know, the perfect number of minutes like you would a pasta and then actually chilling them, serving them on a tray, a little um, peanut sauce, or sorry, a little sesame sauce. And you use that sauce to dip the noodles. And then when you finish your noodles and that sesame sauce, they then come along and top that remainder of that dipping sauce up with hot water and drink it like tea. So something like that is a, beautiful experience and I love or finding that queue down the street where there's a vending machine outside you you know you choose what you want it's you know it's a ramen place you choose what you want it spits out a ticket you wait patiently in line sometimes for an hour I mean it seems unheard of but this is the reality and then you get there is a little because most restaurants in Japan are tiny they're small you know 12 people 20 people and you get one of those seats you give them the ticket they prepare the bowl and you sit there and there's someone standing behind you waiting for you to finish and you're like, I'm going to enjoy this. And it's those experiences that I love. You know, they're, they're quite unique. You know, or sitting on mats and realising that, you know, you can't sit cross-legged for more than five minutes because you don't do it. You know, so you're the fidgety West- <laughs> Westerners. You know, shifting position every three or four minutes trying to enjoy, you know, I don't know, a tempura restaurant that does exclusively tempura. Everything fried in deliciously crisp, light, you know, heavenly batter. And there's family sitting in the one position for like an hour. And you go, note to self, must sit cross-legged mm. more often. So stuff, experiences like that for me, you know, I'm, I'm always looking for a hole in the wall. I'm always using my, I mean, for example, my recommendations two years, three years out of date now because we haven't traveled. Mm. And things change really rapidly. So I use the internet, like everyone, as a source of information. I'm finding local bloggers. I'm finding local food writers that are writing up about things that same kind of resource-based research, research you do trying to find a great little ramen bar in Melbourne, for example, or Sydney. And, and then go, you know, because there's lots of experiences. It seems kind of cruel having you talk about <laughs> travel and things that you can do in the outside world, especially given that we've now literally trapped you on a desert <laughs> island where you don't have any access oh. to any of these nice things. Going. I know. I'd be trying to work out how to take those pineapple leaves and, and take the tips of them and dry them on a mat in the sun and to see whether they, they have any flavour once infused with... Uh, distilled seawater. Yeah, see, this is what happens. We get people with a culinary inflection on and they think of ways to turn the island's yeah. uh, kind of, you know, negatives into positives. So I'm very... Yeah, I'll be, fer- I'll be fermenting the skins of those pineapples <laughs> or the coconut husks and seeing what kind of delicious alcohol. It might kill yep. me, but, you know, like a, they'll find a dead person with a big... <laughs> Grin on his face, yeah. A de- yeah, a demijohn yeah. of, like, coconut husk alcohol. Well, we- <laughs> well, that's what killed the boy, you know? <laughs> 
Well, with, with that in mind, I'm very curious because now that you're on the island, you have to pick one dish that you can bring with you, and that's the only dish you can bring with you. It's your desert island dish. Now, people who don't make food much tend to pick like just a magical version of the best thing they've ever eaten. But you, mm. you've already implied that this is something that you'd like to kind of build MacGyver style. So now that you're trapped on the island, what is the one dish you brought with you, Gary? What is your desert island dish? See, I didn't expect that because my standard answer to anybody that asked me, what would you take to an island? is I'd just go, it's an impossible question, isn't yeah. it? It's impossible. Yeah. As a chef, like it would be the worst possible outcome. Um, I'd certainly have to have a way of um, creating fire rather than a dish. No, we, we can arrange that for you. I think Ella Hooper's yeah. been on the island for quite a few weeks now. I think she's been, um, yeah, she's, okay. she's already so built I'd... a sort of kitchen situation. Yeah, so maybe not matches. I mean, look, pepper would be a good start. Yeah. You know, because obviously, you know, we've got access to fish. I can get salt. There's no problem with that. All, I, all I've got to do is evaporate a little sea, a little bit of that seawater, and I've got salt. And pepper would be the first level of spice, you know, in any dish. So now I can take fish. I can take fruit. You know, I can take, you know, random animals that I've trapped, and I can coat them in pepper and, you know, create something that, you know, is tasty. We, ha- we um, had him a wonderful... Uh baker food stylist just food wizard sean redgrave on last season she just brought a bag of flour and that was she just wanted and you know other people like we said have brought full meals but she just wanted her incredibly versatile bag of flour it infuriated paul but i loved it no flour is a good one and i think and i'd have to i'd have to retreat into that same kind of space i think it's got to be something that would take the dull and turn it into something interesting so a little spice bag you know i've got a uh, you know, from my travels to India many times, so I now have a um, a spice box on my counter, and in it I've got six or seven spices. You know, some of my favourites, things like green cardamom or star anise or cinnamon. So even you know, and actually there are Indian chefs that will tell you that they can create hundreds of dishes out of five spices. Wow. So maybe if I could take five spices, because then you can make. I mean, I, I cooked recently with um, Ajoy from Neil Geary's in Sydney. Uh, we did a little segment for Sydney Weekender, and he surprised me by saying that pretty much all the spices I use are five. They're just five, and I can create so many different dishes from little. You know, we made a paneer from fresh milk and vinegar and salt. So now you got a fresh cheese in literally twenty minutes. And he put a little uh, green chili, uh, black pepper, fennel, salt on this uh, paneer while it was frying in the pan, and it just was delicious like I just went wow I always thought paneer had to be slightly squeaky and not you know this was just soft and Mm. lovely and I go I'm gonna make that so maybe if you could just give me that if I was a vegan it'd be a little bag of nutritional yeast have you heard of nutritional yeast they carry it around it gives them a little you know little little bee buzz you know bee vitamins and something else so you could give me a little bag of um, spices and I could guard them all right so what so we've got a beautiful Jumanji-esque kind of handcrafted spice box like that you're it. clutching under I your like arm. It. And, and I think it's got yes. the green cardamom, star anise, <clears throat> cinnamon. Yeah. Do you know what the other two would be? Oh, do you, I've got to give you five. So let's have five. Do you want yeah, five? Yeah, I'd, five love, days I'd a love to know what you're And then we have two lean, two lean days where it's just fresh, very fresh, <laughs> just fish from the yeah. sea. What's on it, Gaz? Nothing. Um, and then we can have five extravagant days. All right, uh, we've got to have black pepper. We've got to have green cardamom, star anise, cinnamon. So I need one more. What else would I have? Uh, Turmeric. Nice. Good choice. Anti-inflammatory too, which would be useful without any doctors oh, yeah. around. So. Stains everything oh, yeah. though. Ugh. And if I can get that alcohol going out of those coconut husks or pineapple skins, I can infuse it. So I'll be, I'm, I will be the celebration of the island. <laughs> well, that gin craze, I mean, my botanicals would essentially be collected off the island. And, oh, now we're talking. And out, of my, out of my little spice box. I might get murdered for the spice box eventually, though. If there's anybody else on the island, no, it, it's uh, it's magical. It only opens. It's like a when it's I got touch a bio it. lock, Gary. So it's just your... so they cut my finger off and keep <laughs> it in another in a little purse. Someone plucks your eyeball out and holds it up against the retina <laughs> scan. <laughs> Minority Report too. Yeah, I like it. Oh god. Oh wow. No, that that'll be it. I mean, and other than that, I mean, obviously the the you know. Now we've got a sea that is a bounty of you know it's just got to catch the stuff. Yeah, yeah. that's the that's the key. I love the I love that idea. You know when they put people in a survival situation and we realise that we've turned into modern man because we can't catch or grow anything. Yep. And you're selling gin, so you've already brought capitalism. And to I'm this selling paradise. gin. Yep. You've uh, exactly. You already ruined it. But look at Gary. Um, <laughs> Society falls apart. Yep. The small the Lord of the Flies moment changes completely. 
and uh, it falls apart under my gin. On that very odd but pleasant note, much like the aftertaste you. of your new gin, thank you so much for joining us on Dish Island, Gary. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. It was, it was a different conversation and I liked it. It started with Andriette, started with bum, <laughs> and finished with gin. Well, there you have it, folks. Gary Megan, if you haven't already got his wonderful cookbook, Good Food Every Day, rush out to bookstores. Don't wait. Just do it now. You're at work. Forget it. You've got the afternoon off. Go get that cookbook. And if the bookstore's closed, just pick up a brick, break the window. Paul, and t- I'm sorry. Paul. I need to stop encouraging losing. <laughs> Do you know what Gary made me think about for a second there? Just before we wrap up today's episode, and I know it's been a long one. Yeah. Do you remember one of the last times we were over in Paris? Clang! I know, we travel. and We travel with large metal objects, apparently, <laughs> which we keep dropping. Go on. And after eating there for such a while, you and I were just wandering around the streets looking for Asian food, looking so desperately for Asian food, because we didn't realise in Melbourne that we do truly live in such a culinary gold mine where anything we want we can just go out and get we've got every nationality of food Mm. within close distance and and we're so spoilt for choice but when you go to some of these other cities where the food is you know still remarkable but they don't have quite that same breadth of options you really begin to miss how how fortunate we are and how spoilt for choice we are in Melbourne. We are very, very lucky. But you know what I've been thinking about this entire episode and what I really am craving right now? I know from the tone of your voice you're about to say something horrible, but go on, I won't stop you. No, it's just a caprese salad. but (laughs) Without tomatoes, please. Anyway, thank you so, so much for joining us on this enormous bumper episode of Dish Island. We've had so much fun hanging out with you. We can't wait to see you again next week. In the meantime, make sure you head across and check us out on socials. Have a wonderful weekend, and we will see you soon for more Dish Island. Oh, wait, we forgot our catchphrase. Here we go. Eat Eat your veggies. What if they're allergic? I don't actually think you can just be flat out allergic to vegetables. Yeah, tell that to the countless children who are currently lying their way through dinner time. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Dish Island. Dish Island is a proud member of the ACAST Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.